Thank you, June. I knew I could trust you with that long and complicated reading. It's quite a moving and beautiful reading, though. Um, If you've got your Bibles, do turn to it, John chapter 19. And you'll see it was just the two verses, 28 to 29. Okay, brilliant. We are going to dig in now to the first of those two things Jesus has said um, in our reading. Um, We continue today in our Cries from the Cross series. It's actually been humbling for us as we've been drawn to the cross through the final cries of Jesus. Think back of the ones we thought of. Father, forgive them. Don't know what they're doing. Today you'll be with me in paradise. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And mother, here is your son. Today we're going to focus on three simple yet deeply profound words. We could bring up the projector. I am thirsty. I am thirsty. So Lord, as we turn to scripture now, as we turn to your word, we say, come Holy Spirit, and speak to every heart, both gathered here and at home, that we may be changed more by Jesus again today. In his name, Amen. Amen. So before we dig in, I want to share with you that I have discovered something truly shocking over the last three weeks. I kept seeing my children and then other adults as they showed the phone to them, laughing their heads off. And I had to know what on earth was so funny on the phone that was making them genuinely belly laugh, whoop, cheer, squeal with absolute delight. And it turns out that they were using not the, uh, not the communication side of Snapchat, but this thing called Snapchat filters. Now, some of you know what this is, and most of you go, Snapchat filters, Matt. Well, I didn't know either, but let me give you a demonstration of Snapchat filters. So, here's me. Yeah? There he is. That's Matt Bradley, right? Snapchat filters enable you not just a photo, but in real live video time to communicate uh, or to record a video and change your appearance and your face entirely. Would you like to see some of the changes that are possible? Of course you would. That's why we're here. Let's do it. This is me as the hunky version. Look at that, George. Just want to check that out. Look at that. Like you could barely... Now, I could talk to you like that. You think, Matt, you've been working out at the gym? I think I look a bit like James Robertson there, James, wherever he is. That's a tribute to you, sir. Um, okay, here's another one. <laughs> That's old Matt. <laughs> um, yeah, it does look like my mum, I'll be perfectly honest. <laughs> it looks like my mum. I can't really say any more than that. There she is. Nanny Pan, as she's lovingly known by the grandchildren. Um, that's what would happen if I was bold and had a monobrow. That's if I got some tattoos and a nose ring. I'm 
tempted. This is if my head was a broccoli. Apparently that's also possible. This, I like this one. <laughs> this was if only I could grow a beard like the Reverend George Baker down at Pinho Road in Exeter, but I can't. Um, but that's what I'd look like. And uh, this is apparently what I'd look like if I was five years old. Look at that. Isn't it extraordinary? And the truth is, you can speak and record a video and it does it instantaneously. What was only possible uh, by the most expensive computers doing graphic uh, visual effects uh, even just 10 years ago is absolutely perfectly possible to change anything about your appearance and to put on a face. Some of them are hilarious. Some of them are a little disconcerting. Some of them are concerning, actually, because the point is so many people today present themselves online through a filter. You may not realise, but it is so common. Just a little filter that just tweaks you slightly, just changes your cheekbones, or just gets rid of your blemishes, or just removes the spots, or just puts on a little makeup, or whatever it is. Is In the old days we might have brushed our hair a bit or maybe put on some makeup before having a photo or going out. But now so many people consistently present themselves in the digital world in an altered, polished, tweaked, spot-free, cheekbone-enhanced version of themselves that when they see the real self, they're almost embarrassed by it. They don't recognise who that is in the mirror. I only know who I present myself. You may see... On TV, just this week, I saw an advert just warning parents and just saying, what's this doing to our kids, guys? Just think about it. And it just takes a teenage girl who looks, you know, really glamorous and it just removes all the filters and just takes her back to just normal, everyday, lovely teenage girl without the filters. But she's so different on the online world. Yet the truth is, you might sit there going, well, it doesn't worry me because I don't use it. But the truth is, we do all use filters or put on a face, don't we? If not digitally, but a lot of the time. The way um, we desire people to think well about us, and so we present the best version of ourselves. Not necessarily physically, but the way we sort of put on that face of I'm coping, I'm in control, I'm capable. And occasionally the facade kind of falters and people see the true struggling humanity underneath it all. I don't know if you saw on the news this week, amid all the tragedy that is still in the news, there was one uh, storyline that picked up about Will Smith slapping someone at the Oscars. Did you see that? He slapped Chris Rock. He got so upset by a joke about a family member that he couldn't contain himself, and he went up and he hit, open-handed hit the presenter, uh, and before returning to his feet, there to his seat and sort of um, swearing at him in anger. And the reaction from Will Smith is really telling for me because it's like he's gutted that the person he almost wishes he was and the person who he is and he's struggling to be, as all of us are, they're not the same person. The, 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 it's not supposed to happen. The, the, the facade of celebrity and being polished and never losing your rag is supposed to hold and it kind of slipped in that moment. Truth is, all of us can put up a filter or put on a face 
to hide something of our real humanity, prevent, uh, to present a polished version of ourselves to the outside world. But I want us just to think for a moment this morning, what about Jesus? I want to turn our eyes to him. And I want to talk to you this morning about the genuine humanity of Jesus. Because I want to suggest to you that Jesus never used a filter to mask his humanity of any sort or to promote himself in the eyes of others. In fact, if anything, the Bible tells us he did quite the opposite. You see, the Bible tells us Jesus started in the place of perfection. Jesus started with beauty and power beyond comparison. He had a glory with the Father eternally before he came to the earth. The Bible makes it clear. He is and always has been fully, eternally, unchangingly God. It's why he is worshipped in the New Testament, in the Acts and in the early church. Jesus is God, he is and always has been fully, eternally, unchangingly God, one with the Father and the Holy Spirit through all eternity. One God reigning in the heavenly realms, more glorious than we could ever comprehend. And yet scripture tells us something mind-blowingly extraordinary. That this eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing one willingly chose to lay down his divine rights and privileges, to put them aside, to come down to earth he created and to become fully human. Philippians 2 tells us, although being, and listen, in very nature God, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to grasp at or to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he emptied himself. Some translations made himself as nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Extraordinary wonder in the gospel is that God became human and walked among us. Whereas we so often try to grasp at superiority over others, Jesus, although being in very nature God, didn't grasp at his divine identity to try to gain an advantage as he walked on this earth. There was no posturing with Jesus, no flaunting, no putting on a filter to touch up the humanity that he now had. No, whilst remaining fully God, he became fully human, laying aside, making himself as nothing, just like you and me. This is the awesome truth of the Incarnation. For 2,000 years, Christians have been wowing at the incarnation. The eternal God became a mortal human being with all the temptations, the struggles, the pain, and yes, the limitations that that entails. It can be hard to truly understand, I think, can't it? Really. Because we know Jesus was so much better than us. If, If I'm honest, I look at Jesus and go... Yeah, he's so much better than I'll ever be. And I read of his ministry and I think, wow, only he could do that. He demonstrated amazing acts of power. He did extraordinary miracles. He taught with wisdom and truth like anyone ever or since. He was utterly and totally without sin. 
And because we know this, we can easily assume that his humanity was somehow superior to ours. He took on a superior humanity. If we're not careful, we look at him through a God filter and feel he was not really like us. He wasn't a real human being and he can feel somewhat detached. And indeed, some people have kind of blamed John's gospel in particular as a gospel that filters out the humanity of Jesus and instead shows him like a godlike figure far removed from any ordinary human being. So you know the gospels, we have four accounts, four eyewitness accounts, Matthew, Mark and Luke. They are in the first three, they are called the synoptics because they're so similar to each other. They share stories, but each author brings their own record. Uh, recollections, their own emphases. It's amazing. Each one is a different lens. And then we have John, which is so different again. So amazingly different. Just 10% of John is kind of in conversation with the rest of it. But all of it is harmonious and all of it builds this picture of Jesus. But people have said, well, John's gospel has got what we call a really high Christology. Another theological term. It basically means it just presents the enormous deity of Jesus rather than the humanity of Jesus as he walked on earth. Basically the claim is that in John's gospel Jesus knows everything already because he's God. He's in perfect control all the time because he's God. He never worries about anything because, well, of course he's God. John's gospel even omits Gethsemane so we don't even see the struggle of going to the cross and the argument is that it's because he's God. He floats around about a foot off the ground, not like us mere mortals do in John's Gospel, the argument goes. He floats from one divine display to another, free of human limitations and struggle. But I actually don't think that's true at all. In fact, I think John's testimony uniquely gives us some of the most moving insights into Jesus' humanity, more so perhaps than all of the other Gospels, certainly on par. You see, right from the beginning, you'll know it. It's extraordinary first passage in John. John declares Jesus as the eternal Logos, the divine word, the divine cosmic wisdom, the creator, the source of all life, the God of all eternity. In the beginning was the word. He's talking about Jesus. Wow, this is indeed a high Christology. There's no doubting Jesus is God. The Word was with God and the Word was God. But then it says something extraordinary. It says that this divine Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The Greek word for flesh here is sarx. It means blood and bone. It means something transient and perishable. It means skin and guts and sinew. Sorry to use those words, but I'm going to say them again. Skin and guts and sinew, socks. The divine logos became skin and guts and sinew and flesh. Jesus, the eternal word, actually became human in nature and in flesh. He remained fully God, but he laid that claim aside and became fully human. It's really important to John that we understand that through the incarnation this is what happened. And in John's Gospel, if we look carefully, you actually see it. Go read it through again and you'll see that, yes, Jesus does know all sorts of things and he does act in the most amazing way, but we also see that he clearly surrendered the use of his divine omniscience, knowing his omnipresence, 
being everywhere, and his omnipotence, his power. Instead, he became limited in knowledge, localised in presence, and get this, dependent on food and friends and family, just like me and you. Wow. We see how he forms friends who he cares about. He learns new things. He's greatly troubled at the thought of betrayal from a friend. How his spirit is moved, and he makes an involuntary, guttural sound, it says in John, when he sees the weeping of others. Oh! In John, when confronted with the death of his friend Lazarus, we read the shortest and most human sentence of all Jesus' ministry. You know it. Two words. Jesus wept. Perhaps most humbling of all in John, we see the limits of Jesus' human resources. We see the Jesus who gets worn out and tired out and thirsty and needs others to meet his needs. And it's to this real humanity of Jesus I just want all of us to draw closer to this morning. I believe it's important we really understand and witness the struggling human Jesus. And this is the lens through which we're looking at him this morning in this cry on the cross. Because in his humanity, we meet with our Saviour in a personal way. And we realise he really does identify with your life and mine. In his struggle... We find our hearts rendered in a more tender way and our eyes opened to what God really did for us in becoming just like us and in recognising the life and ministry he lived even though his humanity is just like yours and mine. Our own faith is stirred and challenged in a more powerful way. So we turn and hear this cry from the cross And in it we hear three very human words. I am thirsty. Three words in English, one word in the Greek, dipso. Its meaning is a declaration of I am suffering from thirst. And that's the most obvious thing that Jesus is saying here on the cross. As he hung suffering in the heat of the sun. And we've thought about this a few weeks back. Struggling to breathe. His his tongue sticking to the roof of his dried out mouth. He cries, I'm thirsty. And the soldiers lift up to him a sponge of sour vinegar to wet his parched mouth. It's a very human moment. These words are though a fulfilment of scripture and we could go down that route. And that is true. But in the most simplest sense, they're actually words about Jesus' own human need right now. He's not talking to the Father this time. He's not speaking to benefit his disciples or his mother or the thief next to him. In this moment, Jesus' words are about him and his human need. You realise they're words that we've all said too. I wonder when's the last time you said those words. I'm thirsty. You've said them before. Even if you've never known thirst like this, all of us have been parched, and all of us will be again. I'm thirsty. We can all identify with these words Jesus said. I read a lovely Spurgeon sermon on this. And he said to people 150 years ago, recognise when you say these, these are now holy words. Same words that Jesus spoke. I'm thirsty. And yet on another level, To hear this from Jesus' mouth causes us to feel uncomfortable. Surely, in our worship this morning as we lifted up the king of the universe, surely the king of the universe should never have to say this. 
The one who created all the seas, who knows all the wells and springs and rivers and oceans, and whose hands into every droplet of life-giving, thirst-quenching rain. And yet here on the cross, in his humanity, he is thirsty. As we hear, we realize he's crying out in need, barely able to keep going at this point. Here on the cross, we realize he's reaching his limit. He's struggling, really struggling. This moment he is dying. As we rightly say, and we can roll it off the tongue, yes, Jesus died in my place and yours. Yes, we rightly say he's, he's dying, you know, having paid my price for my sin and my mess. But in this moment, I just want you to realize the simplicity of the fact that he is dying. It's a profoundly sad moment. Jesus is coming to the end of his human resources. This moment and these words are a profound reminder to all of us that this is what it is to be human. Much as we might deny it in our youth, we cannot go on forever, turns out. Much as we might want to avoid the topic of mortality or fail to admit our limits, you and I, we're limited, aren't we? These three words and the thirst all of us experience each and every day. And here I am chugging water as I'm speaking, not intentionally. But they're a constant daily reminder of our dependence, the finitude of our own resources. We're not superhumans, we're human. And it is our humanity that Jesus took on. Yet for a moment, just for a moment, come with me from the cross. Let's step back just a bit. This isn't the only moment in John where Jesus demonstrates his physical thirst in John's Gospel. I'm sure you can remember, potentially some of you, the other one. Turn to John chapter 4 and we arrive at the well in Samaria. Or rather, Jesus does. Jesus talks with the Samaritan woman, John chapter 4. And John tells us in verse 6 that Jesus is tired. He's tired from the journey. And so he sits down by the well. His disciples have gone off to run other errands and he's on his own and he's tired. And there's a well next to him. In his humanity he's puffed out. He's exhausted and he needs a drink so he does what any of us would do. He slumps down taking a breather. But as much as he needs the water he sat next to, he's got nothing to draw from. The well would have been there, but it wouldn't have been like a rope with a thing that everyone used. You'd have brought your own instrument to draw from, your own vessel. Jesus hasn't got one on him. His human resources are used up. But soon a Samaritan woman comes to draw water. Jesus reaches out to her. Would she now help him? There's such a richness here about how Jesus becomes the guest rather than the host. How Jesus humbles himself to speak to an outcast. How Jesus shows hospitality and care and crosses boundaries in this culturally unusual act of relationship. And there's so much more we could dig into this. That's not for this morning. Today I simply want to point out to you that Jesus takes this moment of two humans thirsting. To shine a light on a thirst that's far more significant for all of us. 
And feeling the depth of his physical thirst in that moment, Jesus recognises the depth of the spiritual thirst in the woman who's before him. And he tells her of a resource far more wonderful than the physical water she's come to draw. If you knew the gift of God, Jesus says, and who it is that asks you for a drink, says this with such love, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Everyone who drinks this water, pointing to the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. Jesus knows that in this woman there is a thirst that lies so deeply within. But a thirst that's long been buried and ignored through the pain of her life and the demands of making ends meet. She's come to the end of her human resources, so she comes to get physical water, but Jesus recognises spiritually she's at the end of her resources. She needs living water. He recognises a thirst for a relationship with God through his spirit, a thirst for this living water that only he can give. You see, all of us can get to the end of our own human resources, physically, And all of us can get to the end of our resources spiritually as well. Just like the woman at the well, there is a thirst in each one of us deep within to know and to know and to truly know that we are loved, that we are known, that we are seen and cherished and called by our loving creator. There's a thirst deep within to know our truest identity, which is as a child of God. To receive forgiveness and freedom from shame and guilt and to know the extraordinary reality of living a life of true worship, filled with the life-giving presence of God's Spirit within, living every step with him in mind, following his lead, knowing his heart, blessing his name, in all we do. This is what we were made for. And the truth is, whenever we neglect it, whenever we belittle it, whenever we ignore it or avoid it, we thirst. We thirst. And so I simply want to ask you this morning, are you thirsty? Are you thirsty? You recognise this morning that you've been digging deep into your own human resources and that they're coming to an end. Are you tired out, burning out, spiritually flat, emotionally numb? I simply want you to hear the words of Jesus. I can't give you the living water you need. He can. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink, Jesus says in John 7. Whoever believes in me, rivers of living water will flow from within them. See, Jesus thirsted physically as he came to the end of his own human resources, both at the well and on the cross. But he never came to the end of heaven's resources in his life. He never outlasted the love his father had for him. He never ran dry the provision of wisdom and grace and power that came from the spirit which was upon him and within him. You see, Jesus really did become human just like you and I, but unlike you and I. He lived a perfect life. 
He worshipped in spirit and truth. He was obedient in every way to the Father, doing only, Scripture says, what he saw the Father do, saying only what he heard the Father say. He never needed to doubt his identity or question his worth. He never needed to float around or put on a face or use divine privileges. No, he was fully human, but he drank moment by moment from the living waters of God's presence through the spirit that was within him and had anointed him and was upon him every day of his life. Every insight, every miracle, act of grace and power was all in obedience to the Father, he says. And all flowed through presence, the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit within him. If Jesus had lived his life and done all he'd done simply because he was God, and he played the God card at every stage, we would say, that's impressive, but you know, that's for him. But knowing that he lived his life and did all he did, not using his divine rights, that which he laid aside, but as a limited, flawed, finite human being, just like you and me, but one that was empowered by the Spirit and in perfect relationship with the Heavenly Father, obedient to all he says. When we realize that, it doesn't make us just go, wow makes us realize that when he calls us and says, come and follow, he isn't joking. He really means it. Come and walk in my footsteps. Come and do the things I've done, even greater things than these, Jesus says. For I'm sending my spirit to you. I will give you my spirit. And he will live in you. Come and drink. Friends, let me ask you, what are you thirsting for? Your humanity and your struggle, your weakness and your frustration, what is it that you're thirsting for? Whatever it is, come to the source of living water and receive a touch of the Holy Spirit afresh this morning. When we're struggling and we're thirsting, the answer isn't to put on a mask or just to try harder. The answer is to drink deeper. going to invite you just to stand for a moment if you're able please we gave Bex a vase of flowers or flowers that we put in a vase of water for Mother's Day last week and I noticed halfway through the week this one particular stem of beautiful little flowers had gone really dry and crispy and I thought oh they're just at the end of their life I'll take them out and put them in the bin. But then I noticed another stem of the same little flowers in the same vase. And they were beautiful and fresh. And I thought, what's going on here then? As I pulled the two stems out, I realised that one stem was long and was in the water. The other one was short and actually had just been kind of squashed in and had never reached the water. And so I cut the end off and I dipped it in deeper. And the very next day the flowers were blooming and it looked beautiful it was thirsty truth is you may be feeling dry and crispy I know I do not always from time to time I feel really dry and crispy maybe you're feeling like that now maybe feeling like you've come to the end of your own resources can I invite the band up I want to say to you then come and drink deeply from living water this morning we're about to turn to communion now folks at home get yourselves a bit of bread and some juice ready as we celebrate this and share this together. But I want to say to you clearly, friends, the source has not dried up. The living water is available for each one of us to drink from. No matter who you are, 
No matter however long your stem is, if you're that flower, there is water there for you. Come and drink afresh this morning. Maybe you think you don't need it. Maybe you say to me, Matt, I'm okay. Well, a friend of mine gave me a cup of water at the end of a service or during a service on Sunday evening last week. And they just said, I thought you might want that. I was sat near the back of my own. And I thought, oh, I don't know if I do. And I started to drink and I realised within three seconds the whole cup had gone. I was thirsty. Are you thirsty this morning? Then recognise your thirst. Turn to the source, it's Jesus. And receive afresh from him the living water that wells up to eternal life.